every church we went to gaining support to start our church was pastored um, by a white guy. And again, we didn't really have any problem with that. I mean, we were young, we were kids, we just loved traveling. But in those spaces, you're, you kind of get used to the cliches, you know, well, uh, hey, you know, we're going to support this pastor, you know, because uh, we're colorblind and we don't see color and we just kind of love everybody. And so I grew up with those things and it made sense to me, I guess, at that point. I just, I was pretty young, didn't really have a lot of responsibilities at the time. But I will say things began to shift and I began to see things a little bit differently. And I would say more clearly after being at Pensacola uh, for the couple of years that I was there. Um, and it was like something just there's there's something here that, again, just just seems off. Hello, you're listening to History and Hope, a Baptist perspective on history, culture and theology. I'm Mark West. And I'm Matthew Lyon. And today we have an interview with Benjamin Sebrill. All right. So today we have with us uh, Ben Sebrill. So I met Ben, we met about three years ago. Uh, I, 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 think it three, I think it was 2018, maybe 2019. Yeah, just real briefly, there. real briefly. Uh-huh. So Ben is a Christian. He's a husband and a father. And if you follow him on Facebook, social media, you'll see a little bit of the uh, shenanigans his young children have, which I sympathize with. <laughs> uh, he, he surrendered to preach in 2010, and he's currently serving as local church. And he's also a graphic designer, musician, runs an independent faith-based clothing line, which I'm going to look into that. And he's passionate about seeing American local churches be leaders in the conversations surrounding today's social issues. So uh, when I you know, follow him on, on social media, so also Ben grew up in an independent fundamental Baptist church and... Now, you can correct me. It was a predominantly black church, correct? Yes. Yeah, so really, two. Um, my dad's a pastor of the church that I attend now, and the church we came out of, he was the uh, associate pastor there. Um, and so he started the church here. Uh, this will be 24 years, 23, 24 years ago. And so as far as church goes, um, my experience has predominantly been uh, in independent fundamental Baptist churches. Which, I mean, to be honest, is a little bit unusual to have a black independent Baptist church, right? Like they're out there, obviously, because you're a part of one, but it's a little bit unusual. So I'm interested just in your perspective. Plus, you've been you've been getting um, a little bit of attention on social media. So I want int- to introduce with this. You got published at The Witness, a black Christian collective which I've been following and we're going to have the president next week, Tyler Burns come on the podcast. So you got published on there and turns out you went to school with Tyler, but, but here's the title of your article. Cause you went, <laughs> you went big, like Christian nationalism an unholy union. And let <laughs> yeah. me just read a line from it. It was a great article. Great article. Um, and you can, you can find that at the witness Um, You said, the so-called Bible Belt has historically been the epicenter of racial discrimination in America. Tradition, by way of racist ideology, has consistently taken precedence over Scripture. This unholy union reveals itself in the form of Christian nationalism. And then, very relevant this week, it looks like people who claim to be pro-life saying, if he had just listened to the police whenever a black image bearer is needlessly gunned down in the streets. 
It looks like declaring America first when Christ tells us to seek first his kingdom. And it it goes on with more honest, accurate, and hard-hitting evaluation. So um, you went to school with Tyler. That's what you're saying at Pensacola? Yeah, we went to school together for a couple of years. Um, I met him and, you know, we we were around the same age. And so, you know, a lot of things. For us, being at uh, Pensacola Christian College, and I'll, and I'll preface by saying, I'm not one of those people that feels like he needs to like drop a lot of names. You know what I mean? Right. If I like, do drop a name of like a place or like a person, it's for context, not for clout. Yeah, I just don't need. You know what I mean? It's just some of these things make more sense um, when when you have a bit more of that context. So we we went to school together. Um, and he's on next week, so I'm sure we'll share some about his experience there because he was actually in Pentacle the Christian Academy and then went through uh, PTC for a couple of years. But we met there, um, just kind of hit it off, you know, same circle of friends. And um, I don't know, one of the guys where you just, just kind of always respected him, always respected what he had to say on many things, whether it was just talking sports, you know, simple college guy stuff or some deeper type of issues. Um, and as I was really kind of, I guess, coming of age during that time of my life. Uh, he was one of the people I connected with and kind of decided early on, you know, this is, this is probably going to be somebody that I, I stay in contact with, you know, after I leave uh, college or after I leave Florida. And we have, um, you know, over the years, you know, we've seen each other get married and now we both have kids and everything um, involved in various ministries. So it's just one of the guys that I enjoy talking to, love hearing what he has to say, a great preacher, um, and, you know, has a heart for, Bible, his church congregation, and just, um, you know, I think the country in general, I think he, he, he wants to really advance the kingdom and it's evident in the way he carries himself and the stuff that he does. So yeah, I appreciate him a whole lot. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, and you guys, you know, it, it, Tyler doesn't talk about it a lot, but he comes from the same background that all of us do, which mm-hmm. is independent Baptist. And so I know what it's like to grow up independent Baptist as sort of the traditional independent Baptist, which namely is white. What was it like for you? I mean, to be honest, it feels like two independent Baptist churches or movements. Because when I started going to like talking to Kenny Baldwin, talking to you, talking to your dad, there's a disconnect there. I feel, and maybe, you know, I don't want to speak for anybody, but it feels like you kind of grow up differently in a black independent Baptist church than in a white independent Baptist church. But maybe just speak to your experience on that personally. Yeah, um, so definitely different. I remember one of the first things that really threw me off when I went and I got to Pensacola Christian College is that one of the rules, at least when I was there, was like during a church service, you couldn't, um, if somebody, after somebody did like a solo or something, uh, you couldn't clap or like during the preaching, you didn't hear anybody saying like amen or that's right or really talk, you know, just kind of talking back to the preacher, whereas in predominantly black congregations, that's the norm. So right. much to the point to where if, you know, you're in a predominantly black church and a pastor's up there preaching his guts out and he's not hearing a lot of feedback, he'll stop the sermon and say, hey, do y'all hear me? Should I say that? You know what I mean? It's almost as if in, in the independent Baptist churches that I was able to visit and be a part of when I was younger, um, it was almost as if the pastor was soliciting that kind of involvement during the preaching time. Um, and it wasn't just from like men, it was from women as well. I always joke on my mom, we're like, Sometimes my dad will get up and start preaching. It's like, she's talking back. So I'm like, are y'all having a conversation or is he preaching to everybody here? Because, you know what I mean? She, 
she's like she's his hype man. She she's like that's right. He preached it, honey. She the whole nine. But at PCC there was none of that. I actually saw people get written up for that kind of thing. Like get a demerit. I was like that was really awkward. Church was just super quiet, and it was like okay, this just feels wrong, I guess, or weird. It, it just it was just different. So I think there are some cultural differences that play out. Um, you know, when you're talking about independent Baptist churches uh, that are predominantly black and predominantly white, I think there are just cultural differences there. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just want to point out one thing because, you know, I, I you attend a church in somewhere like England. It can be very quiet, very reserved. The problem is that so much that there's different cultures, it's that you were punished for acting a certain way that was totally consistent in your own church. But when you went to this other church, which had the same doctrine, supposedly same everything, mm-hmm. you weren't just sort of like, hey, that's not how we do things here. People were actually written up like they were given punishment for expressing a way, expressing themselves in a way that was normal. I think that's the real problem. It's not the cultural differences, which are kind of a good thing sometimes. It's right. this, this is wrong to do this. It's yeah. wrong to express yourself unless yeah. you're the preacher. Yeah. And like, it was one of those things where I didn't know how to articulate it back then. But what I've come to learn now is that as far as Christianity goes, unity is not uniformity, right? Those are two right. very different things. Um, and so like you said, to see people um, essentially get punished or penalized for um, being involved in a service in a way that um, is not sinful, you know, or unbiblical and by any means at all, like I said, it just felt weird and it, it felt wrong. And so there was a little bit of a disconnect there, especially in, in that sense, um, you know, when I was at the college. And even then, at that point in time, I'm the first to tell you, um, I wasn't, you know, I, I knew I was a Christian, um, but I, I wasn't sh- chasing after you know, the will of God super hard at, at that point in my life. But I did recognize just in the church services, it, it really just felt off. I almost felt out of place. You know what, you know what I mean? It was yeah. just like, I'm here. Um, it's like being someplace you don't necessarily fit. It's like, okay, so one of these things is not like the other. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so do you think you're, I mean, I know for me, the social justice issues or the just social issues, which, you know, we're all interacting with social issues, however we see them the way I was raised is not the way I act now. <laughs> like what I'm saying now on, on social media, on podcast goes against the way I was raised. Mm-hmm. And so I've had to kind of make a shift in the past five, six years as I feel a biblical shift, which has put me at odds with the tradition, uh, the independent Baptist tradition that I came from. Um, what would you say for yourself? Like, has it been difficult kind of transitioning or, or speaking openly? Maybe it's not a transition. Maybe you've always been this way. What's that been like sort of coming out now, getting published online, attacking or confronting, really confronting white supremacy and Christian nationalism? Has yeah, it been yeah. a transition or has it just been a natural progress? Uh, has been. I, I would say maybe a little bit of both, because growing up, um, you heard a lot of the cliches. Because, again, um, there weren't I think even now there are a lot of 
predominantly black congregations, but I think that the majority of those congregations would not identify as independent fundamental Baptist churches. And so I remember even when my dad was starting our church um, and our deputation, we didn't visit one uh, I mean, we didn't visit one independent Baptist church that was pastored by a black man that we hadn't already met. Does that make sense? Mm. Every church we went to gaining support to start our church was pastored um, by a white guy. And again, we didn't really have any problem with that. I mean, we were young. We were kids. We just loved traveling. But in those spaces, you're, you kind of get used to the cliches, you know, well, uh, you know, we're going to support this pastor, you know, because uh, we're colorblind and we don't see color and we just kind of love everybody. And so I grew up with those things and it made sense to me, I guess, at that point. I just, I was pretty young, didn't really have a lot of responsibilities at the time. But I will say things began to shift and I began to see things a little bit differently. And I would say more clearly after being at Pensacola uh, for the couple of years that I was there. Um, and it was like something just, there's, there's something here that again, just, just seems off. Um, for example, um, this is a, actually a funny story that Tyler shared uh, on one of the Witness podcasts uh, a few weeks back. Me and him, he and I were in the same history class, and we had a professor in the history class. Um, you know, this particular day, we were just kind of there, maybe kind of zoned out, um, you know, tired or from whatever, you know, staying up late or you know, whatever, but we were just kind of tired and zoned out, and we were talking about uh, the Civil War, and of course, the topic of slavery came up. And so, when that kind of happened, we both kind of perked up. And one of the things that he said, and I don't want to misquote it, um, but one of the things the history teacher said to us this is again a history teacher at a Christian college, um, one of, really one of the most prominent Christian colleges in the country, if, you're, if you think about it. Um, he talked about how, you know, maybe slavery wasn't always, or maybe slavery. Uh, wasn't really that bad because it had certain economic implications. And the second he said it, me and Tyler were on the opposite sides of the room and he was behind me. So I sat up and I looked back and he looked at me and we gave each other this look like, bro, you need to chill. Like you need to walk that back just a little bit. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, we were the only two black people in the class at that point in time. And just little things like that kind of led to me really saying, okay, you know what, how much of the traditional cliche, you know, Christianese type things, how much of that stuff is actually biblical and how much of it is just American. Um, and so really probably like right when I got married, right before I got married, I started going through the Bible um, and, and really digging through things and trying to really asking myself how much of what I believe by way of faith and practice is based in the Bible, based on the truth, or just based in tradition. And I don't have any problem with tradition at all, but I've come to recognize that tradition without truth essentially boils down to idolatry. That's what the Pharisees had. A whole lot of tradition, really void of truth, right? And so it's been a little bit of both for me, uh, somewhat of a transition. Um, but just like yourself, you know, I can go back and look at some of my old social media posts and be like, wow, that was a stupid thing to say. Hmm. Like, if I could go back in time and just, like, smack my 23-year-old self and say, sit down, log out for a second. Like, <laughs> think about what you just did. I would. Um, but more so in the past five or six years, being a bit more vocal about it. And, again, not just – I'm not interested just out here spouting my opinions. 
like yourself, when I look into the Bible, um, these are things that I'm drawing out of the word of God. And um, I speak on those things. And in some instances, it has cost me friends and relationships. At the same time, it's also garnered other friends and relationships, like the one I have with you. I mean, we, we right. interact pretty regularly online. And so um, it's been challenging, but I'm grateful for it uh, all the same. Yeah. Do you feel like, uh, speaking of sort of independent Baptists, which to be honest, most of our listeners, maybe all of them, I'm not actually sure, but a large majority are going to be independent Baptists. Do you feel like you can be comfortable in the independent Baptist movement now? Or is it sort of not a welcoming place for you now that you start speaking out? Mm, in some instances, it's uh, in some ways, I guess it's hard to say because, and I want to make sure I say this. I mean, I recognize that anything I say may or may not be misconstrued and I'm okay with that. But I think that in recent years, especially, and if you want to kind of put a, time stamp on it you look at um we'll call it just the trump administration or the trump era the reason i feel as though and i believe it's on a lot of instances maybe i wouldn't feel super welcome in an independent fundamental baptist space is because if you go back and you look at the events leading up to the 2016 presidential election i can probably name maybe two maybe two independent fundamental baptist pastors who are like, I support Donald Trump for president. At the very onset, nobody did. A lot of people were, were, were back in Ted Cruz, a couple guys back in Mark, you know, Marco Rubio. Yeah. Everybody thought Donald Trump was running as a joke. Yeah. <laughs> and as the Republican candidates started dropping like flies, it really came down to a choice. Um, it was Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. Yeah. And I wholeheartedly believe that the vast majority will use the umbrella term of evangelicals to include independent fundamental Baptists ended up voting for Donald Trump, not because they love Donald Trump so much, but because they were afraid of what quote unquote Hillary Clinton's America would look like. And I think in that instance, as weird as it sounds, the line that was kind of drawn uh, in the sand, if you would, uh, you know, after Barack Obama got elected, and even then, Christian college campuses during that time were an absolute dumpster fire. Mm, right. um, the line that was kind of drawn in the sand there, as weird as it sounds, I think that, I think for a lot of people that broke the rose-colored glasses, they have kind of been viewing these things through. Um, and so now it's, it, it seems like when, you know, you speak out on a social justice issue, the very first thing, and I've been accused of this comment sections and inbox, you know, well, you're preaching a social gospel, you're preaching a social gospel. Here's what I'll say in regard to that. As a believer, it is not my job to preach a social gospel. I have no interest in doing that. However, I do recognize that the biblical gospel always has a social impact. And the best example of that is Acts chapter four, right? Where it says these believers had all things, they, they had all things common, right? And you look at these people yeah. that were under overt oppression and persecution by the government at the time. Um, and they were just taking care of each other, right? Their salvation 
so transformed their life that they began to look around and say, you know what? I have excess and I know that my brothers and sisters, uh, you know, are lacking right now. Let me give to meet those needs. Right. Right. And it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't socialism at work there. It was their soteriology at work. Their salvation radically changed them. And because that, because, the, because salvation radically changes people, it'll radically change the household. And once that household changes, it'll radically change that neighborhood and it can radically change that community. So much to the point that later on in the book of Acts, they're like, Hey, these people who have turned the world upside down, they've come to our city. What are we going to do about it? Mm, right. These were Christian people that literally changed society simply because they loved people the way that Jesus told them to love people. Mm-hmm. So again, I have no interest in preaching the social gospel, but you can't look at the book of Acts and tell me that preaching the biblical gospel doesn't have a societal or social impact. It's just not true. Right. Anywhere, the, anywhere the gospel is preached and prevalent and proclaimed, there's going to be a societal impact there. And so my view of social issues and social justice doesn't exist in opposition to the gospel. It exists because of the gospel. You look at the crucifixion of Christ, and in that moment, you see the greatest injustice and the greatest justice collide head on, right? The greatest injustice being Christ, a perfect, a perfect sinless, the perfect sinless son of God being crucified for sins he did not commit, right? They chose to free Barabbas, right. the actual guilty person, right? Yeah. <laughs> that is, a, that is the, the, the gravest, the most gross injustice, right? A mock trial. They did it in the middle of the night. You know, it, it, the, whole, it, it, the whole situation reeks of corruption by the government at his time, at Jesus, in Jesus' day, right? So you have this great injustice. But when you look at uh, the greatest justice, right, the wrath of a holy God satisfied, and the death of his only begotten son, right? The, Jesus was the only one who could satisfy God the Father's demand for justice. And so again, I say my, my view of social issues and social justice does not exist in opposition to the gospel. It exists because of the gospel. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's good. Yeah, I, I think there's sort of a secular sacred divide with a lot of churches where we're going to talk about the sacred, the, the holy, the spiritual, we're not going to talk about what the world's talking about. So we're going to talk about spiritual things, not worldly things. And honestly, I think it's a cop-out. I just do, because you look at the way most conservative churches, independent fundamental churches will talk about things like abortion, right? That's the one Mm -hmm. thing. And they'll preach it. and, And I agree. My stance on abortion has not changed and won't. When I look at what, when I examine that social issue from the Bible, that's pretty cut and dry for me, right? And they can, right. and, and we'll hear sermons and things preached on that. And I 100% believe life is valuable at every stage. But I also believe that life is more than being born. Right. Right. There's, I think there's a difference between pro-life and pro-birth. Yeah. Right. And, and I, I, I make that, I, I say that boldly. I say, I, I, I've met a lot of people who claim to be pro-life who in reality seem to be really pro-birth yeah because when you when you when you when you're talking about being pro-life and life being valuable at every stage you have to grieve for instances like Trayvon Martin or Tamir Rice or Ahmaud Arbery mm-hmm. right or even George Floyd yeah you, you 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 have to grieve in these things 
when you're pro-life, yeah. your response to that isn't always, you know, if he had just done this, you have to realize how that sounds. It's like saying, hey, you know, if Martin Luther King had just kept his mouth shut, he wouldn't have got killed on that balcony in Tennessee. Right. right? If, if Malcolm X had done this or if Fred Hampton had done this, right, if Anne Frank, it's not even just black people across the board, if Anne Frank had just done this, maybe she wouldn't have gone to that concentration camp. You know, if that young lady hadn't been wearing this, maybe that man wouldn't have raped her. Yeah. That's a, that, that, that's a very dangerous tone to take. And so, again, there's a difference to me between being pro-birth and pro-life. And we'll speak on that issue in most independent fundamental Baptist churches, and we'll speak on it dogmatically and boldly. But a lot of times, uh, the depth of the theology that gets applied when it comes to things like racism or systemic racism or oppression is that, well, it's a sin issue, not a skin issue. That is flat-out lazy theology and lazy yeah. preaching. Yeah, That takes zero effort. Well, it's a dismissal. And like all the stuff you've been saying so far, it's dismissal. It's how do we get past this conversation with the least amount of correct. Work? Correct. Like, well, let's just, it's a sin issue, not a skin issue. Now I don't have to talk about it anymore. Right. Or if they had just done this, so let's not talk about it. Let's move on. And that's why you notice every conversation with an independent Baptist uh, on these issues always ends up with abortion. Always correct. brings it back to abortion. Because that's the only thing that independent Baptists really care about generally or traditionally. And that's what they're comfortable and talking about. So they always try to move the conversation from whatever you were saying back to where they're comfortable, which is abortion or maybe same-sex marriage or whatever the issue is for that church, maybe. Right. Never right. dealing like, let's deal with this issue. You can, you can you know, walk and chew gum at the same time. You can be against more than one thing. Oh, Absolutely. Why can't we? Why can't we talk about it? Right, right, and I, I believe that the reason a lot of independent fundamental Baptist churches can't talk about it, um, is because they've coddled it for so long. Yeah. If we're gonna, you know, if if, if we're gonna shoot it straight, I don't know if you've ever had the privilege of hearing Dr. Jim Earl speak. Um, he was, uh, yeah, I I know. Have I heard him speak? He was at the SOAR conference one year, wasn't he? Yeah, he he was. He used to frequent the SOAR conference, and he's yeah. way he's he's way before my time, but I've heard him speak a couple of times. And I remember specifically, this story is wild. Um, he spoke in one of our chapel services at PCC. And for the black people there, that was exciting because, you know, yeah. uh, um, you know, we had Pastor Baldwin, Pastor Lou Baldwin, Pastor Kenny Baldwin, and people know them, but they had Pastor Jim Earls come, somebody who had lived through things like Jim Crow and everything. That was exciting for us, right? Because yeah. We just didn't get a lot of black speakers coming through at that point in time. We just, it just didn't happen. And if you know Dr. Jim, or if you ever, I won't say no, because I, I don't know him super well, but if you've ever met Dr. Jim Earl, right off the bat, you kind of get the sense that Dr. Jim Earl is not super concerned about what you think about Dr. Jim Earl. He's going to say his piece. Um, and I, I appreciate that boldness from him. But in one of the stories he told us, uh, he was telling us about some of the things that he went through. Uh, and this is honest, this this was after the civil rights movement. This was, he, he was talking about stories in the seventies up until the early eighties, where he would go to speak at churches, and you know, somebody once slipped him a note that said, uh, "This church we believe in no slacks, but women in pants, no tracks that means no pre-recorded music, and no blacks." Wow! Right, and then the icing on the cake was during his uh, his chapel message there. He actually used the N word in context, where somebody had oh. referred somebody somebody at a at a, at a church, um, you know, a Baptist church, um, had told their pastor, "We don't want this 
inward, you know, speaking in our pulpit. And when he said it over that large stadium style yeah. <laughs> uh, sanctuary full of students that were predominantly not black, I promise <laughs> you heard two sounds. You could hear a pin drop and you could hear the black kids snickering. <laughs> because and, 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 and those two things happen in rapid succession because after the initial, <gasps> the initial gasp, from the people who weren't black and maybe just weren't used to hearing that word in any context. Yeah. A lot of us, if I'm completely honest, we're just kind of tickled and amused at the fact that they found it so shocking. Mm -hmm. Because for us, this is not new. The first right. time somebody called me the N word to my face, man, I was six. Mm. I had kicked a soccer ball into a lady's super well manicured yard and she didn't let me, she wouldn't let me go into her yard again. She wanted me to step under the grass. So she goes and scuttles over, grabs the soccer ball, looks me in the face, throws it back and calls me a stupid N-word. I'm six years old, man, at mm. this point in the game. And mm. so when Dr. Jim Earls used it, not, again, not just flippantly, you know, he wasn't up there. Right. Just, no, he was up there using it, giving us an example of, of some of the things that were said to him. Um, and if not, saying, he, he ended up preaching about uh, perseverance. Um, and how, you know, during his time in the ministry as a preacher and a pastor, there were times where he felt like quitting because it just seemed like the odds were against him, right? Mm -hmm. And he shared these examples and these stories. And when he used the N-word there, there are a lot of people that were shocked by that. But for those of us who were Black and, and had literally, by the time you get to college, yeah, most Black people have experienced some form of racism. It just wasn't new. Yeah. And it was almost bizarre to be like, man, like no shade to anybody, but are Christian people really this out of touch? Yeah. Because well, this isn't new. Well, I think you brought this up earlier about being colorblind. And I've learned this from both sides of it, being part of it and then speaking against it. White people, white independent Baptists do not talk about race unless it's forced on them. So very true. Our listeners know this, um, and I, I kind of want to contrast. I want to hear what your your contrast is. You don't say white people if you're white. That's just you don't say it. And if you do say it, white people don't like it. I still remember the first time I used white people from a pulpit as a pastor. And you can, you know, when you're preaching and you can, you can read the room. You, you can just, <laughs> you can feel it. Like it, 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 no one even has to move. And, and you just see them, you can see their brains. It was just this sort of like kind of what you felt when he said the N word, all the white people, they didn't, they didn't have to do anything for you to feel their reaction. Hmm. So it, I joke about this all the time and it's not funny, but it's, it's humorous and sort of a incidental way when white people, when they're just around white people, when they say, when they talk about black people, they always lower their voice. They're like, you know, I, I met a, <laughs> a, a, a black a black man. It's like, what's the deal? What, what's wrong? Like, because we're so um, uncomfortable with it. We just don't talk about it. Like, and that's, that's sort of the racial progress that independent Baptists made. And I'm not talking about the independent Baptists who are openly racist, which plenty of those. Out there. <laughs> I'm talking about the sort of the, you know, the respectable independent Baptists, the PCC crowd, white people don't talk about race. They don't, they don't say white. They try not to say black if they can. Um, hopefully they don't say the N word though. Who knows um, what they do in private, 
now from your point of view and with this, what you're saying with him, that seems ridiculous. So what was it like for you growing up with just words like white, black racial issues? Like, was that common? Was that just normal? Growing up, um, you know, um, at Crossroads Baptist church, again, a ministry I'm deeply, deeply, deeply appreciative and will always be indebted to, um, you know, in 1994, um, Dr. Lewis Baldwin starts the Conference on Evangelizing Black America. Mm-hmm. And the amount, the sheer opposition that, he, that, that that movement has always been met with to this day really is telling. Yeah. Because during those meetings, it was never just about getting a bunch of black pastors together to preach about how bad white people. I know that that was never on the agenda, right? right? Yeah. Since day one, almost always half the preachers there are white guys. Mm-hmm. The goal was to get churches, specifically independent fundamental Baptist churches, to recognize, hey, for a very long time, you know, independent Baptist churches claim to have the truth and you know, that perfectly fine. But for a very long time, uh, black people were excluded in your plan for reaching people with the gospel, if mm-hmm. we're just being honest. And so the goal was to have a special focus on evangelizing black people, specifically in the American context, and then to get those black people involved in evangelizing the world. Yeah. They were saying, hey, listen, the reason, the reason you don't see a lot of independent fundamental Baptist churches pastored by black men is because there aren't any. And to be honest, at this point in time, if I'm not mistaken, there is not a single independent fundamental Baptist church in the country that has sent out more black pastors to start independent fundamental Baptist churches than the Crossroads Baptist Church. I believe that it's historical fact, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. It just hasn't happened, my dad being one of them. And the goal was to say, hey, we're, we're, we're Christians, and just like Paul had a burden for his kinsmen according to the flesh, we have the same thing. And it was weird to see the opposition, especially as, especially as I got older and started understanding these things, because, uh, uh, you know, uh, a guy from Japan comes to America, goes to an American Bible college, gets an education, goes back to Japan to start churches. We send that guy thousands of mission dollars a year and praise God for it, right? Yeah. It, it, it makes sense to have somebody native from the, to reach them with it, that just makes sense, right? That's not about being prejudiced or racist. No, that's just about being effective at that point in the game. You know what I mean? Yeah. I I could I could go to I could go to Japan and I could start a church, but I assure you that a Japanese speaking man, a man who understands the culture and the people and who grew up in that, is going to be far more effective at reaching Japanese people. Why? Because he identifies with them right on right off the bat. Yeah. Right. And so the goal was to say, hey, listen, in, in America, there are black people here who have not been reached with the gospel message. Not, that, not to be confused with black people who don't go to church, because a lot, the majority of black people go to church. I think you'll find that, right? Yeah. A lot of black people go to church because it's always been, you know, things like churches have always been uh, traditionally like cornerstones in predominantly black communities, right? You can't go to any predominantly black community in the country and not find at least half a dozen churches there. I mean, in the neighborhood uh, behind where our church sits now, man, within like a five or 10 mile radius, 
all over the place, small churches and predominantly black sections of the neighborhood. There were black people who hadn't been reached with the truth of Jesus Christ, the gospel message. And yeah. the goal was to focus on reaching black people in America and helping those black people be involved and fulfilling the great commission, which is to preach the gospel to every creature, right? Everybody on the planet. And some of the questions that people would ask were things like, well, where is black America? You know, where, where, where is it? I'm like, the ignorance in that statement. And right. like, like I said, the response to that has been so telling because like you said, for a lot of white pastors and Christians to get up and hear a black man preach about, hey, for a long time, these uh, uh, churches that have historically been pastored by white men neglected to reach black people, often in their own city. To hear a black man say that and cast down that indictment on predominantly white churches in America, that just made a lot of white people mad. Yeah. It just did flat out. But again, like I said, it only makes sense if a Japanese man comes here and goes back to Japan, starts a church. Fantastic. You know, a guy from Mexico comes here, goes back to Mexico, starts a church. That makes complete sense. So why doesn't it make sense, uh, you know, for uh, a guy from South Central L.A. to get his education and go back and start a, a church in a predominantly black neighborhood in South Central L.A.? How is that different? Because what you have to understand is as far as black people in America go, uh, there is definitely a subculture there. It, 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 it exists. And, and not just on, in everything, in, 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 in music, in style, in cooking, in art. There are some things about black people that only black people understand. Right, right. And so the most effective way to reach those people is to find somebody who's been where they've been inject that person back into that culture with the Bible and the gospel message and watch them start making disciples and transforming those communities one person at a time. Yeah. Just like you do any other missionary. Yeah. And it took years to get that kind of support for, for the COVID conference, because like you said, it just made people who weren't black uncomfortable. Yeah. Which it's, I'm always struck by the contrast between white, white independent Baptists and black independent Baptists or black people and white people. Black people talk about black people, right? There's, they're, you know, you're, it's your family, it's your culture, it's your, it's just normal. It's just life. It is. It's, it's nothing special. It's, it's special in the same way that your family is special. But I don't pretend like I'm the only one with a family, right? And so it's just like here's here's what you know, the whole um, the joke about being openly black, right? Like <laughs> it makes black people laugh. Because it's like, what else would I be? It's funny because I just laughed at it. Like, it's a, it's a good joke. It's a good joke. Like, because black people are like, well, of course we're black. When did you figure it out? It, I, there's a guy in our church. Every time we talk about or someone, if I'm, I did a podcast with him, so people couldn't see him. And I'm like, you, you're an, a black man, and he's like, all my life. Like, that's why he always said, all my life. I've been black all my life. It's just comfortable because it's who you are. And right. then you go to a white context, and it's sort of like we're not going to talk about race. We're colorblind. We're not going to talk about white. We're not going to talk about black. We're just going to talk about people. Right. And, and contrast there is like, wh what's wrong? Like, right. Exactly. It's like, don't make it weird because it's not like, <laughs> don't make it weird. Black people are a thing. I, I mean, I didn't choose it. It chose me, right? I didn't choose the game. The game chose me. No. Um, it, and like you said, it, it, you'll find that in those predominantly white independent fundamental Baptist spaces, it doesn't come up. Unless it's unless it's a forced conversation, you know. Like I, I remember specifically, like you said, for a lot of uh, you know white people in these in these churches, 
when they talk about black people, they kind of lower their voice and whisper it. Yeah. I, re- I remember, I remember coming up and thinking to myself, why, why, why do people do that? Yeah. It was like, a, that, that just seems like, like such an, an odd thing. Um, and like you said, when it comes to the whole being colored, by, I, I remember that cliche going up all through school and, yeah. and, and stuff. And I went through a pretty small Christian school. I was the only guy who graduated in 2005. Really small Christian school, you know, predominantly white. Um, and again, good people who I, I didn't believe wanted to serve God and do what was right, but maybe just didn't have an understanding of, of again, of just Black American culture. And so when you hear things now, when I hear things now, um, and I'll say for a large part of this for me in the way my thinking has changed um, to what I believe is a more biblical approach to these things is um, I had children. Mm. I had children and my, my, my son Tristan is five now. He's the sweetest little boy in the world. I remember yesterday, this is a random story, kind of off topic, but it ties back in. Um, his aunt, my sister-in-law, gave him a pack of cookies and there was two cookies inside and he gave him a pack of cookies to have a snack. So he opens the cookies up. He's excited. He's a little boy. He loves cookies. And he pulls them both out. And before he takes a bite, he stops and he looks at the cookies. He bites one and he says, here, daddy, here's one for you. And I'm like, well, you know, that just kind of melts the heart, right? So I gave it back to him. I was like, no, it's your cookie. It's yours. But sweetest little boy in the whole world. You know what I mean? Um, I'm proud of him every single day. Um, he's a great big brother to his little sister, his little brother. Um, but I was only a year older than he was when somebody looked me in the face and called me the N-word. Mm. And in my mind now, I'm preparing myself because the truth is it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Yeah. And I can tell you right now, it's going to take a whole lot of the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit to keep me composed my little boy comes in the house one day and says, Hey, somebody called me this dad. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so when I had, when I had a son, I had, I, I started thinking about these things a lot more closely. Um, and it's just, it's, it's hard to articulate, but I guess if I had to put it in a nutshell, I don't have a, I don't have the option of just not talking about race. I yeah. don't Why? because I have black children. And before long, they're going to hop onto a social media site and see somebody that looks like them in a body bag who shouldn't be there. Yeah. And so when I hear people say things like, you know, now, you know, I'm color, but I don't see color. I'm like, that's, that's funny because God created it. Why, yeah. why, why, inv- why invalidate a part of God's creation uh, because you're ignorant of it? Right. That doesn't make sense to me. The fact is you see color. I don't know why you have a problem with it, but you see it. And when somebody says, I don't see color, that means they are refusing to acknowledge the parts of me that are different from them. Mm. That's infuriating to me. Yeah, that's good. That is infuriating to me. They're refusing to see, to acknowledge the parts of you that are different from them. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, if you only love people that look like you, you don't love people. You love your reflection. Mm. No, that's good. That's yeah. And I think that's why white people avoid the conversation because it gets personal really quick. It does. And you, the, the, I, I, I've, I've talked to my, I've talked to my friends, some, some of my white friends and they'll say, you know what? I, I have family members who don't talk to me anymore because I posted a picture, you know, uh, with the hashtag black lives matter. 
<laughs> I have I have had people in my inbox. So it was funny because last year when we were all kind of stuck in our houses, what do we all do? We got on social media all the time, right? We were bored. We weren't really going anywhere. Yeah. We were just checking out our friends, posting memes, trying to laugh our way through the pandemic pain. And really, I don't want to make light of that at all because we recognize that you know people have been severely affected by that. But obviously, um, I have a friend who's um a licensed counselor, um, and she she's talked about on several occasions how memes are actually a social coping mechanism. They help people cope on things collectively. And so while some of them might be trivial, you know, and kind of tongue in cheek and lighthearted, they actually have a profound effect on 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 people, which I think is interesting. But anyway, yeah, we were all at home last year middle of a pandemic and then we see george floyd um mm. being choked out and then we see ahmaud arbery the video of ahmaud arbery mm. like months after it happened then we hear yeah. about brianna taylor and you know you see these things and social media is not the best form to engage in these kind of conversations but you see these things play out um and like you said, I had friends of mine who, who aren't black who started speaking out on these things as well. Like, whoa, that's 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 wrong. Like, I'm looking at this. There, there's no way to justify this. And I've had people in my inbox for the past year saying, I've lost the majority of my friends. Yeah. Because I said things like Ahmaud Arbery should still be alive. Mm. Or because I posted a hashtag run with Ahmaud. Right. Right. Or because, you know, I posted something that said, uh, you know, the walls in the house next door got more justice than Brianna Taylor did. Right. You know what I mean? True. And I, I literally know people who have family members who don't talk to them anymore because they simply stood up and said, hey, this is wrong. Yeah. I know it's wrong. And I can't just sit back and not say anything because it's wrong. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, one thing I've noticed is this past year, um, the first part of the year, you know, I mean, the only difference with the police killings of unarmed black people now is that there's videos of them. Right. Nothing's changed, um, maybe ever, but certainly not in the decades. You just get to see it on video now. Before it was like you, you watched Rodney King, and that was the only thing you ever saw if you're white about right. a black person being abused by police. Now we're, we're catching on video within months of each other. Yeah. So in the beginning of the year, there was a lot of support from white Christians and even independent Baptists. I was surprised. Kind of calling out like, wow, this is too much. George Floyd should still be alive. And Ahmaud Arbar was, was murdered. We got we to gotta speak up against this. But as the year went by, I noticed the narrative changed and, and, and a different focus came out. And it wasn't like it was okay what happened. It was like, instead, let's talk about something else that's not race related. Let's right. talk about the riots. Right. Let's talk about the protests. Exactly. exactly. We got to talk about critical race theory and Marxism and communism. And as the year went by, there wasn't a lot of support anymore. There wasn't. It, it was now we got to fight communism and fight Marxism and critical race right. theory and fight violence and protests. And it was like, it was like white people didn't have an answer to the obvious violence. And they left it alone. But then by the time the year ended, they, they had something they could focus on instead of yeah. that. And, and let so, me tell you, I think that's a good point to make because you talk about the critical race theory. First of all, critical race theory is not even new, right? That's been around since no. the 70s, right? 70s. Exactly. It's not new. It's popular now. 
mm-hmm. uh, but it's not it, it, it's not a new thing. And I've read article after article and seen soundbite after soundbite of pastors getting up and preaching about, you know, uh, we're not going to have any critical race theory here. It's unbiblical. It's ungodly. But I'm like, guys, 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 hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. We do recognize that critical race theory is not the problem. Critical race theory is the result of the problem. <laughs> yeah. An critical answer. race theory is the result of the problem because you can go, you can Google. I, there, I posted a photo a few weeks back of, um, a bunch of clan members standing in a church and it's a big band. They all have, have their hoods on and everything. There's a big banner behind them that says Jesus saved. Yeah. And I'm like, this is something that we have to wreck. This is something that American local churches and predominantly white spaces have to reckon with because this wasn't hundreds of years ago. This was, this, yep. these, these were photos from the sixties and the fifties, right? This, this, this we're not okay, we're past the slavery part of it and that's there's still a, there's still a ton to unpack there i mean look at the you go back to 1619 when they start bringing black people here against their will there's a reason slave ships had chaplains right there's a reason they gave slaves a copy of the bible with entire books redacted there's a slave bible on display in the museum of the bible of washington dc yeah yeah Right, right. And so you, you, we, we, we have to acknowledge at some point, there has to be an acknowledgement, you know, of what the root of the problem is. Because like you said, the conversation and narrative did shift like halfway through the year. You started talking about people talking about, you know, we have to fight Marxism and communism and critical race theory. We should be focusing on unity. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like I said, number one, unity and uniformity are not the same thing. Yeah. I'm going to say that the day I die. But you can't you 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 can't have unity. You can't have unity until you uh, until you I, I identify what is cause the divide. Right, right. And so the divide was uh, uh, at its at this country's very inception. This country's very inception. Again, there was an unholy union of the sense of nationalism and kind of mingled with the Christian faith, right? Mm-hmm. I call it the God and country mentality. Right. And I reject that completely because it can't be God and country. It's God then country. I can't put God and America on the same pedestal. Right. You know yeah. what happens when I do that, Matt? What happens when I do that is when somebody criticizes America, I think they're attacking God. Yep. yep. And you see it all the time. Yeah. So somebody will criticize something that is that exists you know uniquely in the american context or what or or, or what have you um and they're immediately bombarded and blasted with people saying well that's ungodly and that's sinful and they hurl bible verses often out of context man i can't if i had if i had a dollar for every time somebody hurled a bible verse to me out of context i could afford to send them all to theological seminary right i really could yeah. Yeah. And I think that, and that's the point. Critical race theory is a solution, a proposed analysis of a problem. And what everyone talk about now is they're talking about that and not the problem. The riots are a response to the problem. When are we going to talk about the problem? Exactly. It, and, and it's funny because, you know, preachers and pastors and they'll get up and write articles and blog posts against critical race theory. I'm like, okay, so, 
you reject this solution, that's fine. Do you have a better one? Mm-hmm. Other than saying that it's not a skin issue, it's a sin issue, because you've been saying that for decades and it's, it's, it's never worked. Still an issue. <laughs> right. Like it, it, it sells corny, it sells corny t-shirts at a Christian bookstore. Might be cool to say, you know, at like a Bible camp for teens in the nineties. Yeah. Um, but it's 20, it's, it's 2021. That's not working anymore. Yeah. That, 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 that facade, that veneer that is, that is worn thin. It is crumbling. Um, that doesn't hold that, that bucket doesn't hold any water. And so fine. You're going to criticize for the race theory. You're free to do that, but please recognize that's not the problem. That's the result of the problem. Like I had one person tell me, you know, what about, you know, it, this is in regards, I've talked to somebody about COBA again, Conference on Evangelizing Black America. You know, why does there have to be a black version of everything? And I was like, excuse, <laughs> excuse me, sir. Please remember, black people, we ain't start that. Right. <laughs> we didn't give ourselves colored only water fountains and, 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 you know, colored only restaurants. What happened was black people tried to go into restaurants. And they said, we're not going to serve black people here. So what did we do? Okay. We started our own restaurant. And then black people wanted to go to colleges and college admission board says, nope, we're not admitting Negroes. So what did we do? We started our own colleges. And so black movie stars and actors and artists wanted to, to get on TV and they would go to see producers and they would say, you know what? Hmm, we're not comfortable casting a black person in this role. So what did we do? We started our own TV networks. Yeah. That's not the problem. We didn't do that to ourselves. We tried to eat at the white-only restaurant that had good apple pie. Y'all said no. <laughs> so we had to find another restaurant, and if we couldn't find one, okay, well, hey, Aunt Mabel has a great apple pie recipe. Why don't you open up shop, and we'll go there every week. You know, so black people didn't start that. Yeah. We yeah. just didn't. Yeah. And so the reason there are, quote-unquote, black versions of things now is because when we try to go and get and be a part of the white version, white people were like, mm, "No, hard pass." Yeah, I gotta send my kid to school. You know what I mean? I gotta eat something. So it, 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 again, we focus on the results of the problem, and this is again it's, uh, talking about specifically independent fundamental Baptist churches. In a lot of cases, not every church, but in a lot of cases, there's a focus on the results of the problem and not the actual problem. Yeah, and so. You know, if, if you focus on just treating the symptoms and not the root of it, it it'll just it springs up. We're 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 not attacking this thing at the root, and yeah. it's a shame because there's no there's no organization or program on the planet that has the one thing that all Christians have: the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's, uh, we 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 have the power of the Holy Spirit, of an almighty, living, omnipotent, omniscient, holy God living in us, burning inside our chest. And for somebody with that power locked up inside of them to say, it's not a skin issue, it's just a sin issue. (laughs) Man, that is sad. Yeah. That is sad. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to, uh, to end on right there. I'm going to do something new, Mark. So, I, I, Ben, you ever listened to or heard about Truth Table? Uh, I think maybe I might have thought just kind of floating around the feed. I think so. Yeah. So it's um, Christine, Dr. Christina Edmondson, uh, Michelle Higgins, and Akemeni Uwan. 
three black women. Anyway, they great podcast, and they do something on their show that I'm gonna I'm not gonna steal it, but I'm gonna copy it. And they call one's got to go, and so they <laughs> they now in their show there's they're a little more focused on uh, the tar- target audience more black women. So I'm gonna alter it to something we agree on, which is the office is if not the greatest show, one of the greatest shows. And there's, that's yeah. really not up for debate. So it's not the one's got to go. Now this is not your favorite. It's which one would least affect the show. Michael Scott, Dwight Schrute or Jim Halpert. One, one's got to oh, go. Oh man. Okay. Let's think through this. Let's be rational here, guys. <laughs> All right. Anybody who, who's watched The Office top to bottom, front to back, knows that when Michael Scott left, the show lost a very important dynamic. They tried, um, you know, and it wasn't terrible, but I'm glad they ended it at season nine because season 10 would have been a catastrophe and would have tarnished the entire legacy, yeah. right? So I'm glad they ended it at season nine for posterity's sake. <laughs> Jim Halpert... So John Krasinski, the guy who plays him, help for those who don't know, I think him on screen in that role, it's hard to beat. Just the way he looks at the camera, the way that he, uh, he's kind of goofy, but still has a really commanding presence on the screen in the show. And as far as like, for like a sitcom type show, I think there's a lot of character development there for Jim. Yeah. Which I which I which I which I appreciate over the course of a show. Yeah. And then Dwight. <laughs> <laughs> I told my wife the other day I wanted a Shroot Farm shirt for Father's Day. Just <laughs> because like I have I have like a couple of Dunder Mifflin hoodies and a hat and everything. Yeah. Um but if one has to go, if absolutely one has to go, I'm gonna say reluctantly the white shroot because <laughs> if Jim Halpert goes, you miss out on the whole Jim Pam love story arc, which if you're sappy, it yeah. kind of works. Yeah. If Michael Scott goes, we saw what that's like. And I mean, like the stuff that comes out of his mouth to this, to this day, <laughs> to this day, I cannot tell you how many times in my own household where my wife and I will be having a conversation and one of us will insert a relevant michael scott quote like when we first brought home our our new baby he's he's four months old now we would say things i remember one day looking we were like dead tired because new babies are up every couple hours feeding and stuff trying to get adjusted and the other kids are sleeping and i remember one day i said to my wife um this is i think it's a quote i want to say season two where the cold open michael scott goes i'm an early bird and a night owl so I'm wise and I have worms. And it's like my favorite quote of all time. And it's just, it was just one of those things that just kind of fit because we were up late, up early all the time. Right. Um, but yes, I would have to say Dwight goes because you, without Jim, you missed the whole Jim Pam thing. And then you need Michael Scott because he's full of one-liners. Mm. And if Dwight is gone, Dwight could always play jokes or pranks on somebody like Andy or Kevin. So there's still a little bit of material there for Jim to kind of like play pranks on people. So yeah. yeah. Hard choice though, man. That's tough. Yeah. Uh, what do you say, Mark? As you already expressed, obviously we got a taste of Michael going and it was not good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and it's hard to argue with, I mean, Dwight exists to be a foil for Jim. <laughs> so Jim, ex- so his very existence is dependent on Jim. And also NBC didn't pick up the, the, I can't remember the term, but there's, a, they did a hidden pilot of Dwight, which is why there's that one episode in the final season that was super Dwight focused in the farm. Mm, yeah. That was a, a backdoor pilot and NBC yeah. didn't like it. So hmm. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to go with get rid of Dwight. Man, stuff. I'm, I'm going to buck the trend and go with Jim. Don't you say it. Okay. <laughs> no, not Michael. <laughs> Yeah, I think the the proof's in the pudding there. We don't, we don't even know what it looks like. We know it. Hang up the phone right. If you're going to go in the direction, just hang up the no. phone right now. Yeah, uh, our our quote because when we have babies, we always ask like, "Did you mark it with a secret mark that no one knows except for you? <laughs> no one can see except for you." Uh, <laughs> the watermelon birth. <laughs> Why is it so slippery? <laughs> it's just right, and there's just so many things that only make sense if you see them. Um, I mean. One of my favorite parts is the other day um, I had my son and I try to be, I'm very careful. It's like, he doesn't spit up on me. So I always have like a rag or something. And one time I didn't have one and he got me really good. And so my wife was up and goes, well, 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 how the turntables have. <laughs> that's, that's the quote. <laughs> right. That's the, that's, that's the entire quote. It's just, it just works in so many, in so many instances of life. Michael Scott quotes just work. Oh man. Yeah. No, I'm going to go with Dwight only because obviously what you guys said is true, but I feel like he carried us through those seasons without Michael. Mm-hmm. Um, he like Jim was definitely more important to the show overall, but when you needed him, when Michael was gone, who was definitely the heart of the show, I felt like it was Dwight. So, you know, fortunately we don't have to pick, but yeah. So there it is. The official ruling is Dwight Schrute is gone you got to put your best beats up front those are your money beats (laughs) (laughs) all right ben thank you so much for coming on here this is great to um connect with you talk hear your point of view and people want to yeah if people want to follow you where can they do that um if you want to follow me just facebook first name last name ben sebrel my last name super uncommon um fun fact i've I haven't really met many people with my last name that I'm not in some way, shape or form related to. <laughs> like, even if it's distant, it's just not a super common name. Yeah. Um, so S E B R E L L. Um, I'm the only Ben Sebrel. Um, same on Instagram. If you want to follow pictures there. Um, I do post a lot about my kids and my dad log because they do funny stuff and I hashtag it. So that way when they're older, I can show it to all their friends. <laughs> um, and it's an easy way for my parents to find posts about the kids online as well. Yeah. Um, okay. So hashtag dadlog or cerebral society. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, you can email us at podcast at historyandhope.com or message us on Twitter at historyandhope. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or any podcast app of your choice. Hey guys, we are starting a Patreon. And the purpose to be, we'd like to give our guests a little bit of um, appreciation money for coming on, sharing their experiences with us, which took many years to get. So if you'd like to support us, support our guests, and then also we might um, put together like a a conference or a Zoom meeting and have people on for that. If you'd like to support that, go to patreon.com slash history and hope, and you can uh, subscribe.
you can subscribe. We might do special content on there uh, for our listeners. But if you want to support our, our show and also our guest, sign up. <laughs>